from the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. Delta Dispatches, we're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. How are you, Simone? I hear that you all have received some gumbo weather recently in Louisiana. Um, you know, I, I, And just like that, it's already gone, Jacques. <laughs> no, it was, it was a wonderful um, 72 hours while it lasted. That was our fall, I'm assuming. And <laughs> um, no, it's, it's kind of overcast here, um, but it's not quite as hot as it had been. So, um, you know, last week we had uh, Jere Jambon with Bless Your Heart, and they had a big distribution event last Saturday. And so the weather was absolutely perfect for them and a lot of folks that are still doing recovery work, um, you know, during the week and on the weekend. So that I am grateful for. Yes. And and there was such a wonderful episode last week and really appreciate Jure's time during, you know, ongoing recovery and, and they're incredibly busy. So if you haven't checked out that episode, please go and listen to it and find out how you can support that great organization, Bless Your Heart, and the work they're doing in the Bayou region to help communities recover from Ida. We'll keep saying it again and again, but it will be a very long road to recovery. There's still so much need um, in communities across Louisiana. And you can go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash Ida to um, learn how you can help specific communities in need. And we've, we've spotlighted a few on our website, the town of Ironton, I believe, um, you know, we're going to have a, a post coming out shoot soon on the Poinashen Indian tribe and others. So we're, we're just really trying to put that spotlight where it's needed now more than ever. I'm very excited today to talk a little bit about, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about Ida and ongoing recovery and, and really think about it from a standpoint of Louisiana. But, you know, it's a storm that had massive impacts on the East Coast as well. And so we have someone who has great expertise in tying these two regions together in, in terms of thinking about, you know, the climate resilience and what we can do to leverage our strongest assets, our natural assets, um, to help, you know, protect people from these increasing climate impacts. So I'm so excited to welcome on someone who I have admired and followed for a long time, um, Kate Orff, who is the founder and principal designer of Scape Studio, um, which is a landscape architecture and urban design studio with offices in New York and New Orleans. Um, So welcome to Delta Dispatches, Kate. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Simone and Jacques. Nice to be here. And uh, yeah, let's talk. I'm very excited to uh, be in any program with Delta Dispatches as the title. Really exciting. <laughs> I'm jealous of the New York and New Orleans studios. I love that that oh, boy. just couldn't decide and she's like, I want them both. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Yeah, there's 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 been a mass exodus to New Orleans too. So many creative people. There's just, it's just such a dynamic environment. Um, also a risky environment as you've just uh, faced with, with Ida and, and, and during hurricane season, but always it, uh, New Orleans always just draws just such a incredibly spirited and, uh, you know, diverse uh, group of people. So we, we love being there. 
well, with the warehouse we, district. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and there's, you know, that strong connection between New, New Orleans and New York um, that goes back for a long time. And, and so love that these two cities are kind of anchor points for a lot of your work. So Kate, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, how did you get your start in landscape architecture? And then for those who may not know, tell us a little bit about landscape architecture. <laughs> sure. Um, let me think. I mean, so landscape architecture, I suppose, as as fairly more traditionally practiced is like the art and science of shaping land, right? And, and landscape architects have kind of originally sort of designed large, beautiful estates or, or public parks. Like for example, uh, in the New York context, we have Prospect Park and uh, Central Park designed by Olmsted and, and Vox. Um, and, you know, what I've been trying to do is trying to push the profession or the discipline or the practice of landscape architecture into this kind of new realm and this next century realm was that, yes, we need public space. Yes, you know, we need to look differently at the land and, and each other, but we also need to do these things relative to, to climate and relative to like a much more broad-based and intensive repairing of the natural world and, and the relationship between people and nature. So that sounds abstract, but I'm actually trying to do that in a lot of very, very specific ways through specific projects and initiatives. So although landscape architecture was, you know, maybe when I, I, I'm just from a lower middle class, you know, suburban household, I didn't even know landscape architecture existed until I was, you know, in college. And then I was like, hmm, okay, so there's this sort of way of being in the world. I can get paid to do this. Uh, you need to know about horticulture, drainage, sculpture, art, you know, you need to be able to draw and uh, you need to be thinking about kind of publicness. And so it was for me, uh, you know, a way of kind of pulling together so many different threads of what I was interested in and what I was, you know, good at at the time. So, um, so I kind of discovered landscape and tried to make it into what I wanted to do, which was to sort of practice in a little bit more of a activist uh, kind of climate forward context. So Kate, you can, as a landscape architect, you can go work for a firm. You could do lots of things. Um, there's folks at, at our Coastal Restoration Authority, you know, but, but you have your own studio. So tell us about Scape, how the studio was founded and what makes it unique. Sure. Yes. And so that's one of the, the one of the great things about being a landscape architect is you could work for a national park. You know, you could work for a city agency or in, in private practice. I'm trying actually to encourage more landscape architects to run for office <laughs> or, or, <laughs> or actually become a little bit more involved in, in some of the key federal agencies that truly shape our land, like the United States Army Corps or the EPA or the Department of the Interior, etc., but yeah, so I founded Scape, um, I guess more than uh, many years ago, 2005 or thereabouts. Um, and, you know, with, with this sort of principle in mind where rather than pursue more traditional types of work, I was looking to form an office that could be kind of a platform for, um, you know, research and outreach and and making projects. So I think Scape has been really groundbreaking, I hope, in, in this in this direction. Um, and rather than just sort of 
provide professional services because in a way, you know, landscape architecture is, is, you know, comprised mostly of professional services firms. I was really trying to kind of chart an, an agenda. So early projects way back in the day, you know, I was, I've been thinking about sort of biodiversity and climate and, and, and so on. And, you know, just one example of an early initiative was, um, I worked with the New York City Audubon Society here to pursue um, a National Fish and Wildlife Service grant to develop bird safe building design guidelines. So became a, you know, sort of a project leader because it sounds like, how is that landscape? But it is truly about landscape, right? Because, you know, in, in New York in particular, I had been um, you know, volunteering at uh, Project Safe Flight, which is a very kind of a difficult situation where you have, you know, endangered neotropical migrants, warblers, um, you know, incredibly beautiful um, uh, migratory birds that are crashing into, you know, glassy buildings because the buildings are not, you know, bird visible or they, they reflect habitat. So, you know, even though this isn't like one-to-one landscape architecture, to me, it's like deeply intertwined with the kinds of projects that we need to be doing to kind of re- hit the reset button with uh, the built environment and humanity. Uh, and so we developed this series of bird-safe building design guidelines that won won some awards, and then they were later uh, adopted. I just like sent the whole file over to the American Bird Conservancy and became essentially the basis for um, this, you know, you know, bird safe building techniques. So, you know, what, what, what use is it as a, a, what, what use is a giant empty landscape devoid of, of life and biodiversity, etc. Another project I did was called Safari 7, which was reinterpreting the number seven line uh, subway here in New York City as kind of an urban eco safari to kind of bring outreach and fun and education to people riding the subway to kind of learn about what they're seeing out their window. So I, I would just say those are two kind of unconventional types of projects uh, that um, I was advancing, you know, along the same time as doing like libraries and courtyards and, and, and reading spaces and small parks and playgrounds and those types of things. So um, so scape is special in that way. And then I think that rather than just responding to someone's idea of what we should be doing, we are trying to do what we think we should be doing, which is, you know, pushing forward these new forms of, of practice and engagement and, and um, you know, kind of designing for, for the biodiversity um, that, we, that, we, that we, you know, really need to at this moment. Yeah, Kate, I want to dig in on that a little bit. Um, you know, I think certainly in Louisiana, as well as so many other places across our country, you know, our landscapes have been engineered. And now it seems like there is a focus and intention on um, engineering those landscapes with nature. I know the Army Corps just released, I think, international guidelines on, on the use of natural and nature-based features um, to reduce flood risk. And, you know, this is something that, of course, from the NGO side, we talk about a lot, the opportunity to um, use natural infrastructure to kind of provide vital buffers to communities from extreme weather and deliver other benefits. So can you talk a little bit about that opportunity that exists in our country to better leverage nature to confront the climate extremes we're experiencing? And then also, you know, I mean, how do we make that case to policymakers to uh, planners that, you know, this is kind of the, needs to be the future of how we're engineering our landscapes. 
Yeah, I mean, um, just to sort of go back, it's a it's a great question. I feel like it's a really key question of our our time right now, because <laughs> I feel like, you know, I, let's just like think back to. Um, you know, the floods of 1927, right? This is, <laughs> this is this kind of moment in, in, in U.S. history and where these, you know, the, you know, there had been deforestation, you know, a lot of land use change in the, in the, in the broader Mississippi River Basin. Um, and, you know, at a certain moment, the, the floods hit and there was this one kind of response, which is like, it ushered in the, this, the era of big levee building, for example, all along the, this sort of southern, southern range of the, of the river. Um, and, you know, it was like, it, it was at the time, just a huge, incredible effort, right? Just to, to achieve this. But one of the challenges is, is that today we, we see more and we see more the complexity between social justice, between the living world and biodiversity and the need to kind of like coexist <laughs> and have these kind of elements kind of coexist and drive uh, a different kind of kind of human habitation. So one of the challenges with that kind of, um, you know, gray thinking of like, let's just engineer to fix this problem, problem A of flooding. What has happened in the meantime is that an entire spectrum of unintended consequences or new challenges have been created by that one singular approach, you know, from, you know, and you can, you know, I'm sure your readers could, could list many, like from being, you know, having, you know, communities of, of uh, cut off from, from the river that once sustained them to privatizing that river's edge to, you know, um, encouraging the use of the Mississippi as a, as a kind of a, a industrial pollutant canal to um, um, kind of losing all of this incredibly nourishing sediment and having that being kind of funneled by the levee system off the continental shelf and just being dumped into the to the Gulf as a kind of a waste product and contributing to to land subsidence and land loss. I mean, so it's solved for one type of challenge, but it created a whole spectrum and myriad <laughs> types of new challenges. And so. One thing that um, I think is important when talking about shifting to, you know, nature-based infrastructure or thinking about the natural world as something that is sustains us and has sustained us for <laughs> for centuries and will do and will continue to do so is that, you know, it's not going to quote unquote solve for X. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship with quote unquote gray infrastructure but it does set us up to do a couple of things and to look forward into the future and sets us up to the, to do a couple of things better. I mean, one of those things is, you know, connecting people back <laughs> to an immediate relationship with their immediate environment and the flora and fauna that sustain them. So it's about people. It's also about, you know, um, anticipating multiple forms of climate risk. It's not just about quote unquote, stopping flooding you can imagine a reestablished sort of floodplain or, you know, extending into um, a street tree pattern. So this would not only, you know, calm and, and slow uh, uh, rising waters, but it would also provide shade and tree canopy during extreme heat events, right? Um, wetlands can help cushion um, uh, kind of surges, but then also provide habitat for 
fisheries, you know, enabling us to sustain ourselves uh, with, uh, with the kind of fisheries industry. So it's not solving one X for Y. And one thing I kind of push back on is like, hey, it's not gray, it's green, <laughs> because it's a different mentality altogether. It's about acknowledging the complexity of, of the, the natural world and humans place in that world and like trying to truly make a paradigm shift altogether towards having new tools in the toolbox, not just engineering, but financial tools, social tools, housing, you know, a whole range of, of different things that we need to weave together to actually live sustainably in the next century relative to all the risks we face. So natural and nature-based infrastructure is like incredibly important at this time, not only for the reasons I just um, described relative to reducing climate risk more holistically, uh, but it's also incredibly important because we are at the threshold of, you know, what has been written about by Betsy Colbert and others, Elizabeth Colbert, as, you know, the sixth extinction. So while we have modified the planet as space for uh, us, we have eliminated that habitat as space for other beings, um, flora, fauna, um, you know, name your favorite, name your favorite bird, the um, the roseate spoonbill, the bald eagle, uh, uh, etc. And so, you know, by introducing and, and redesigning uh, nature uh, in, back into our kind of conception of infrastructure, we're also kind of bringing space for other beings, you know, back into the planet. So um, anyway, just a, a couple of thoughts there on, on the importance of kind of hitting the reset button and really framing our future climate adaptation relative to natural systems. So Kate, now I know why Jacques loves you so much. You speak his love language and throwing in some bird references every now and then. So I know, I know, <laughs> I know that's why. Um, no, that was really well said. And I, I think you made a really great point about it's not just plug and play. You can't just remove gray and put in green and expect this. And and so I think you did a really good job of, of kind of explaining the interplay of those relationships about how one could help the other it's not really a silver bullet, you know, but then we could go on to to kind of make headway, like you said, with tree canopies and those kinds of things by just taking a problem and, and kind of turning it around and, and thinking about it differently. So I want to bring up, um, you were recently featured an amazing profile in The New Yorker, along with our colleague, David Muth, um, called The Seas Are Rising, Could Oysters Help? How a Landscape Architect is Enlisting Nature to Defend Our Coastal Cities Against Climate Change and Doing It on the Cheap. <laughs> So um, in the I, I, I would have eliminated that doing it on the cheap thing. I thought I was like that was like a bridge, <laughs> a bridge yeah, too far. Yeah, that's like my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, I'm certainly not driving around in a Ferrari. I oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I. I <laughs> I would not eliminate that. I love that. That was a great. Um, but in the piece, um, the reporter discusses you know a tour of an area in Louisiana where the wetlands are growing, you know, of, of course, we, we talk about this a lot on the show because it's reconnected to the river. But you're quoted as saying, you may think this is silly, she said, but I find it almost prehistoric here. There's something dangerous in the air, but also something overwhelmingly beautiful. You can feel the earth being born again. Tell us more about that trip, the background behind that quote, and, and how you 
really feel about this opportunity that Louisiana has to use that asset, right, the river, um, to help us in the future? Yeah, well, I mean, what I can say is, and I'm, I'm sure your, your listeners kind of have had this experience as well, but I, it, the, the images and the, the experience of destruction um, is, can be like truly overwhelming. Like it, just think about the, the you know, the, the wildfires of, of the West. Um, you think about, you know, centuries of, of you know, living beings, <laughs> you know, burning to the ground in, in a matter of days and weeks. And so, and you, you, we, we, we all can see in front of us uh, right now, you know, the destruction of, of living things. We can see birds colliding into windows. We can see, you know, the decimation and the eutrophication of our water bodies and, you know, the, the, the clearing of land and, and the kind of commercialization of land. And so I guess what I was trying to get across, and that was during this um, boat trip with David Muth and, and, and Eric Kleinenberg, the writer, um, was, you know, what, what I experience when I'm in, in the wetlands and the, in the swamps in Louisiana, particularly where the, the sediment is able to kind of reconnect uh, with, uh, with the basins. It's like, you feel the literal opposite of that. Like you feel regeneration, you feel land being built and born. You see, you know, uh, you see sort of willows, seedlings, and, 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 and sort of whips taking hold. You see birds then, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, sort of roosting in those seedlings. You see uh, this whole kind of, you can almost like play, you know, just how you can play backwards the worst kind of destruction and imagine, you know, a kind of um, nihilistic, you know, future of, of despair. When I'm down in the, the, the delta, I, I feel um, this chance of, of regeneration. And, and I use the term baby land, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like okay, these little land particles, you know, forming back up and linking back up. Um, you see, you know, birds roosting on it. And so it's, it's, just, it's just overwhelming for me because I, I tend to, to see the worst in, in, in the environment. I've been all over the world with my Columbia students um, traveling to global cities and just seeing um, not only just here in the U.S., you know, the decimation of, of land and ecosystems. Um, and what you rarely see are those glimpses of, of positive, regenerative futures. So um, I'm so inspired by, um, by the sediment um, and, 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 and the, the, the life-giving power of the, the river that, 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 is, that we witness. It's something I'm trying to do also in the New York region. We have a project called Living Breakwaters that's similarly trying to kind of provide this, you know, regenerative, positive view of, of how to bring uh, people, uh, ecosystems, uh, and uh, kind of climate risk reduction back into uh, a positive view of, of the world and, and what, we can, what we can look forward to, what we want to see. Yeah. And Kate, I mean, that quote was so incredible. And I think you just articulated that opp opportunity so well. Um, and, you know, in Louisiana, it's often hard to see that future, right? Or see that vision. I mean, we're living behind levees, often disconnected from 
our natural coastal environments. And so when you can actually get out and see it, it is so powerful. Um, I know a lot of the work that SCAPE does is help, you know, folks understand and see that future vision. And you've done that with work in, in Louisiana on our future coast, as well as um, a recent project along the Mississippi River envisioning um, the Mississippi as a living river. So can you tell us a little bit about those projects? I do want to talk about New York in a second, but um, particularly on our future coast, you know, what was SCAPE's role there and, and what um, opportunity do you think exists for entities that are doing this work, this planning to help people better understand, you know, that future vision? Yeah, our, I mean, our work on our future coast was, you know, for me, I almost feel like design is like midwifery <laughs> too, in a way. I, I feel like like sometimes our role is to simply just absorb and channel all of the great ideas that have been surfaced over many years and try to like capture them and put them on the page, if you will. Um, so um, I think our, our future coast, we work with Don Bosch and David and, and Muth and, and a bunch of, you know, really with like a sort of an advisory uh, sort of group and, and try to just understand what would, you know, what, what could we, what could we do to, to sort of put forward um, the best available um, science and the best available experience and kind of translate that into kind of a roadmap for a positive change. Uh, and we first did a sort of study of, of you know, multiple basins and, 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 uh, and uh, of the river. And then we really focused on Barataria Basin as a kind of a sample of landscape um, interventions uh, that could be um, clustered and that would add up to more than the sum of their their different parts. So, um, so we began to, um, you know, fold in a series of, of, of actions and suggestions for the upper, middle, and lower basins. And then we tied that back to this kind of concept of a blue economy, or I guess a blue-green economy, um, a teal economy, uh, that could kind of really uh, paint a picture of how people's lives could be, you know, and, and livelihoods in particular could be woven into this very positive, uh, restorative vision for the future. So again, it's not like I didn't see our future coast as something like, hey, we came up with this thing. It's more of like, here's a lot of amazing ideas that have really been circulating. Let's try to synthesize them, get them on the page and, and put out a kind of a sample roadmap for this one basin that could be essentially a proxy or, or like a, a, a um, an example about how you could begin a basin by basin kind of planning approach rather than just think about separate, you know, projects individually um, across a broader landscape and to cluster them for larger social and environmental benefit. So Kate, shifting back to New York a little bit, um, y'all recently launched a, a project called Living Breakwaters There, right? So tell us about that and why that was a significant step forward for that region and for natural infrastructure just in general. Yeah. So I will say after eight, I don't know how many years, nine years, um, we just essentially did a ribbon cutting for Living Breakwaters last week. It's very exciting. The story of that project is, um, you know, it's, it's part of human nature, I acknowledge, but just as Katrina, you know, sparked a, a, a big sort of, you know, look in the mirror for the New Orleans region, um, 
here we were hit by Superstorm Sandy and you know, lives were tragically lost. And uh, we, many, you know, many of us were just complete, everyone I would say was just completely surprised by the, the gravity of this, uh, of the Sandy event. And so as part of the, um, you know, rebuilding process, there was a very modest um, kind of effort called Rebuild by Design that was, uh, came out of um, President o and then President Obama's uh, uh, initiative uh, of the Superstorm Sandy Task Force. And it was led ironically by Sean Donovan, who is an architect or who was trained as an architect, excuse me, who was the head of, of Housing and Urban Development HUD at the time. And it was a, an, a, an initiative that was uh, designed to not just build back what we had before, but to sort of fold in innovative thinking relative to um, our infrastructure. And so living breakwaters emerged out of this uh, process over a cup of a year, uh, where we uh, basically looked at the entire region, developed a kind of a researched agenda and a thesis around nature-based infrastructure in New York City, and then honed in on the Raritan Bay and the site in Tottenville where lives were tragically lost uh, um, and uh, developed the strategy or this approach called living breakwaters. And what the breakwaters are, are, are essentially kind of you know, rocky structures um, uh, that are embedded with kind of ecological concrete units. Uh, those structures are seeded with oysters by uh, Harbor School students in Billion Oyster School, uh, excuse me, in the Billion Oyster Project. Um, so they're e designed to sort of recreate this kind of mosaic, three-dimensional mosaic of, of substructure, of, 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 of structure on our, uh, on our basin uh, uh, floor that, 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 that has been you know, ripped out. And so the breakwaters reduce risk. Uh, they bring um, educators to the shoreline through the Billion Oyster Project and through a series of, um, I think it's maybe five to seven uh, schools in Staten Island. And it also helps to kind of um, uh, bring back fin fish, shellfish, oysters, and others. So it's, I like to think about it, you know, I mentioned before when I look at the sort of land building and these like little moments in, in, in the Delta and in, in the Mississippi River Delta as, as these kind of regenerative moments, living breakwaters is truly the idea of setting into motion a regenerative process that incorporates people, risk reduction, climate risk reduction, and, uh, and uh, marine ecology, and setting them back into a kind of a regenerative path. Um, so, and it's all being uh, constructed now. We have boats uh, in the water, and uh, really excited to, to really do, I kind of see it as a one-to-one -one pilot for these kinds of projects moving forward. I, I love that, Kate. And, you know, I have to say, I, I did see some media coverage or maybe, you know, some photos on social media. And, it, you know, I, I loved the actual groundbreaking. I saw images of you standing in front of a massive crane and to think, OK, we're built, you're going to, there's going to be building this massive reef, right? This natural reef that um, will be put back in the ground. It's just, it's just so exciting. So, um, and it's interesting to reflect on, you know, again, that connection from Louisiana to New York, how in Louisiana, Katrina was a huge wake-up call. It, it forced the state to think differently about um, its approach to kind of how it, it managed its coast. Similarly, with Superstorm Stan Sandy in New York and New Jersey, um, unfortunately, we had another kind of 
the worst connection um, recently with Hurricane Ida, where you know so many communities across Louisiana were devastated. And then almost surprisingly, folks didn't expect it, the storm to stay as strong as it did as it moved up the East Coast and then brought further devastation and, 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 and tragic loss of life to you know New York, New Jersey, and then even damage in Pennsylvania. So can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, reflecting on Hurricane Ida, you know, what issues that brought to light, but also, you know, where both regions can go from here, both in Louisiana and New York. I mean, since you do have offices in in New Orleans and New York, um, it must have felt overwhelming, you know, to kind of have both offices being affected by the same disaster within a matter of days. So certainly hope you and your staff are safe and kind of managed to to get through the storm okay, but I just wanted you to reflect on the storm given yeah. that connection. Yeah, I I mean, I, I do not want to take this lightly. I mean, many, um, many people were impacted. Um, um, you know, we have people who are still not really back in their homes, our, our staff in, in New Orleans. We have people who don't have power, who all their possessions you know, got molded. And so it's like, it's, it's literally like, I'm sure so many people are in the same boat. So very different kind of damage, of course, but, but, you know, life altering, um, nonetheless. I mean, Ida, Ida was in just, I think, again, we have to do so much learning uh, from these events and, and not just respond to them one-to-one, but kind of use them as a springboard towards future, uh, future proofing and imagining imagining alternative futures because you know the uh, seeing Ida's path kind of head straight for Homa actually and 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 just just west of of New Orleans was was really eye opening right it sort of cut the swath and then it became um, you know it arced over the country and manifested essentially in the mid-Atlantic and the Northeast is just a massive, massive and sudden rain event. So we had a rainfall total just in Wednesday, on, on, on that Wednesday of, of 8.4, maybe 8.41, something like that inches in New Newark, New Jersey. And that's like the highest for any calendar day in the records dating back to 1843, you know, I mean, at least, or, or as, as like, uh, as, 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 as long as anyone has ever been keeping records. So it wasn't just that the rain came, it was that it was incredibly intensive and, and sudden. Uh, so, you know, it, it was, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, imagine that, and you can't just abstract that of like, there was a lot, because during that interim period too, we've developed the surface of the earth and paved the surface of the earth so extensively that um, you know what was a rainfall event and what it is you know uh, you know fifty or hundred years ago what it is today has also massively different impacts right because that rain is not absorbing into the earth it's flowing across asphalt and concrete surfaces so you know it was just many people are impacted and I think in the New York region I think we're still grappling with what that what it means and what it meant I mean one of the, um, you know, takeaways that was also very tragic here was that we had loss of life in, um, in basement apartments that were kind of called, um, you know, illegal, right? Because they weren't kind of like listed with a DOB, but of course I live in Queens and so is my, my neighborhood. And so many families of lower income rent these basement apartments because that's what they can afford. So 
for me, it was like, okay, this isn't just the climate issue. It's not just about rainfall. It's about affordability. And it's about, you know, it, 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 it's about justice and it's about, you know, how, you know, the choices that people have, right? So, you know, many, many intersecting challenges here. And moreover, right here in Kassena in, in, in Queens, the, the, the zone where we had loss of life and people in basement apartments who were, who were trapped was also a zone that was a former lake. It was a pond that was uh, filled in with uh, the spoils from um, building the Long Island Expressway. So it was, I, I do feel like these storm events shine a spotlight on or magnify, reveal uh, so many different intersecting threads of, of you know, where we've come as a society, the choices that we've made over time. And now in this sort of, you know, I don't, I don't use the words extreme weather very often, but if you have like the slow climate change overlaid with extreme, you know, extreme weather, you can really see, you know, how social, environmental, land use, um, and housing uh, choices over over decades have combined to really, uh, you know, dispossess <laughs> um, many, and and I'm quite nervous uh, about the choices and the challenges that we face in, in the future. They are not easy choices, uh, but um, every time an event like an Ida or a Katrina or a Sandy happens, we have to kind of dig deep and try to really learn the true lessons of that event, not just kind of get everything back to the way it was. We have to look more structurally and more radically at uh, how people were impacted, who was impacted, where were they impacted? And, and think about risk not as this one-dimensional thing, but something that's inclusive of, you know, justice and social life, and, as well as in kind of environmental issues. So, Kate, um, while we wrap up our wonderful time that w- that we've had with you, I certainly want to a- end it on a on a positive note. So, what what motivates you and gives you hope um, to act for the future? Um, I guess let's leave it as simply as that. What, what gives you hope for, for the future? You know, I, I think there, I, I think I'm coming from landscape. I've seen the, the power of the natural world at work, right? I can see the, 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 the cycles of nature over time and over years and they're incredible healing and reparative <laughs> qualities. So I'm inspired by by that, by, by literally like the life cycle of the tree or, you know, the ability of a plant to come back year after year. Um, and I'm also, I, I've learned to not be overwhelmed by huge tasks. We have massive tasks in front of us, but we simply have to like break them down into manageable, um, you know, uh, chunks or manageable sort of um, um, facets of action and and sort of get to work. Um, so that was sort of something I learned from our future coast. It's like you can't take the entire thing on, but let's like scale it down. Let's break it into basin by basin. Let's break the basin into component parts. Let's break those parts into you know specific investment. And you know by by thinking in a scalar way, I also tend to try to keep myself going and, and not get overwhelmed. Um, um, bridging the the big landscape scale down to the manageable sort of 
action at, 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 at what you can do when you wake up on Monday morning helps, helps keep me going. Well, thanks, Kate. And I do want to give a plug to Our Future Coast since it's been mentioned a few times. If folks want to check out that work and the project that Kate and many others worked on um, for that project, it's ourfuturecoast.org. And Kate, can I ask, where can people go to learn more about SCAPE and, and the work you all do more broadly? Yeah, uh, we have a website at www.scapestudio.com. And we have an Instagram account, which I think is just um, Escape Studio. Uh, and so um, those are two places to go. And uh, yeah, thanks for your interest. Wonderful. And before we let you go, we do have a tradition on Delta Dispatches. We like to ask a fun question. Usually it's food related. Um, but today, <laughs> I think. Or about birds. <laughs> or about birds. Um, today, yes. I'm, I'm more curious. You've worked in so many places. Um, is there a place you've just been really wanting to work at some at some point or, you know, what is if you could do a project in a certain part of the world? You know, do you just have your eyes set on one place that you're like, I want to do that? at some point? <laughs> Well, I am from the Annapolis, Maryland area, and I have not done a project in the Baltimore Harbor or in oh, the Chesapeake that's Bay. That's interesting. So and, and even though that was like the landscape that I learned everything I know about sort of wetlands and bays from, I've never worked there. So um, I'd love to do a, a sort of work with Chesapeake Bay Foundation or any of the land trusts um, in, in the Chesapeake. Uh, we'll be cool. sure to tag them when yeah. they post this. On. <laughs> thank you so much. That'd be great. Love yeah. it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Kate. We know you're very busy and really appreciate your time and insight as we, I mean, it's, complicated times. There's a lot to digest in terms of what we're, we're experiencing right now, kind of the plans for the future. So just having you um, help us understand some of this through your perspective and, and experiences is so helpful. So thank you again. And as a reminder, you can go to scapestudio.com to learn more about Scape Studio and the work that Kate and her team are doing. So I'll close out with the coastal stat of the week. Shock, if you want to give the coastal voice. That sounds great. Um, mostly because mine is shorter. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the coastal stat of the week, Louisiana has 37% of all the coastal marshes and habitat in the continental United States. Mic drop. That's the end. <laughs> well, and I'll take the coastal voice of the week. And this week's coastal voice is from Tom in Baton Rouge, who says, I support our coast because this is where we work, we play, and we will see our children grow. I'd like to share with them the same opportunities I had growing up. So thank you, Tom. And as a reminder, you can go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast and share your voice in terms of what Louisiana's coast means to, to you. And I just want to give one more reminder and plug. Um, there's still so much need for communities that have been impacted by Hurricane Ida. So please go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash Ida and, and learn more about some of these needs. And, and more importantly, uh, a lot of the organizations that are working on the ground to, to help in the ongoing aftermath from Ida. And that's MississippiRiverDelta.org slash Ida. So another wonderful conversation. Thank you again to Kate Orff and Enscape Studio. And we'll be back soon on Delta Dispatches. Until then, we will see you later, alligator.